0: In today's episode, our guests Sima Lupert, Mina Jagannath and Vince Warren talk with Wolfgang Kalik about how human rights can be used to resist and counteract post-colonial injustices. Human Rights in Times of Crises – ECCHR's talk series on resistance and concrete utopias. With our talks, we want to create the necessary platform for actors from all over the world to discuss and advance global human rights struggles. Human rights are a concrete utopia worth defending, but how to defend them needs to be constantly reinvented. As we find ourselves in a time of profound global transitions, human rights actors need to refer to prevailing inequalities and the underpinning social questions. We initiated an event series that is now available as a podcast to rethink the struggle for and around human rights.
1: Hello everybody, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. Uh, and welcome to the last part of our series human rights in times of crisis resistance and concrete utopia as you might have observed we have already um, organized a couple of talks about things like the right the global right to health like ecology climate change and human rights and lately also about feminism and human rights the idea is the idea was actually to have a conference in person and to discuss the kind of multiple crisis. And that was already before um, the coronavirus came up. It was in 2019. And already there, we we had been observing a multiple complex global crisis, economic crisis, Um, growing violence of men against women and children, but also obviously the climate change and um, environmental destruction and lately the pandemic. So one might think that this um, looks like a very dystopian vision, but at the same time, activists, artists, experts, but also some lawyers, are breaking with the established and designing counter models for the future people are taking the streets for their rights and those of others, and human rights organizations have expanded their repertoire to include legal action. Nevertheless, more would be necessary and more would be possible. And this is why we called um, our series in the subtitle Resistance and Concrete Utopias. One concrete utopia is definitely enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, The declaration offers a rich treasure of freedoms, but also of social, economic and um, cultural rights, individual as well as collective rights. But nevertheless, um, this program must be sharpened. And the human rights community must reach out to other communities, to other top, must uh, take up other topics. Therefore, we're saying that human rights work must refer to the prevailing and growing inequality, the underpinning social questions, as well as be conceived decolonial, feminist,ic and ecologically. And here we are by today's event. So we have. Um, Mina Yaganat, who used to work as a lawyer in Miami, but is now uh, um, has moved to New York and is an advisor to the um, she, she runs the Global Network of the Movement Lawyers Lab, and she will um, explain a little bit later what that means. We have Sima Leupert here, who just arrived from Namibia. And I will introduce her and in a little bit more in a later moment. And to my right is um, Vince Warren from, again, also from New York, the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Right, a long-standing partner organization of, of um, my organization, the ECCHR. The so decolonization, that's the, the overdue re- reappraisal of colonialism, an absolute antithesis to human dignity and human rights, and we will come back to that. Um, this decolonization, it's it's, it's strange to even spell that out. But it's not yet on the agenda of many human rights organizations. It's not yet on the agenda of the legal community. And this is an overdue and uh, task because uh, decolonization should become a genuine human rights task. Um, and that refers to a lot of different questions. Decolonization is not only addressing colonial crimes in the past, and we will come back to that when we ref- when we talk about the gen- German genocide in Namibia as well as um, slavery in the US. It's also about decolonizing the law and uh, researching the role of law in legitimizing imperialism and colonialism. So actually, the history of international law can be read as the history of imperialism and colonialism. So that's a genuine task of the lawyer. But it's also about decolonizing the relations between northern and southern-based human rights organizations and to come to a more cooperative practice. So we have a long agenda for today. And I would like to start with you, uh, Sima. I hope you're fine here in uh, dark and cold Berlin. So welcome again. And um, so Sima, you are an advisor to the NAMA Traditional Leaders Association, and you're as well a a descendant of the victims. So um, would you like to share some personal remarks with us about your own history and your family's history?
2: Yes. um Oh, yeah, I've shared this story um, so many times, but yeah, my, my own grandmother was born in a concentration camp. Her mother, my great-grandmother, is a survivor of Shark Island, was subjected there to the sca- scraping, scraping of skulls. When the concentration camp of Shark Island was closed in 1908, the prisoners were moved to sort of satellite concentration camps where they were to serve as slave labor for the new settlers that had now confiscated all the land. And my great-grandmother was rented out to a, a German settler. And um, yeah, this is where my, my grandmother was mothered, was, uh, yeah, was, was, was born um, and fathered by this German settler. And so, yeah, that, 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 is, that is my reality. When we were, when we were young, we, my grandmother always used to talk about the island. And, um, but we never realized, you know, what this island is. It's only when you grow up and you sort of um, read and you start to make sense of what the elders were whispering that you are putting together all the pieces of the puzzle. So yeah, this is this is this is who I am. Um, I remember my great grandmother as a very, very frail old woman who was very. She didn't like being around people. You know, she was a very secluded um, kind of person, who which I found very, very strange. Um, but I can relate to that to that now. Um, since we you know as you grow older uh you make all of these together, so that's that's my personal personal history. being a activist in the genocide struggle is not something that you do by choice um it becomes a necessity because you yourself need to find yourself who you are, where you come from um you need to start making sense or sense of all of that. And so being involved in, in, and also the realities that you live in now um, are the realities that were created by this genocide. So it is not something that you, even in my generation, something that you have escaped. So you start to ask yourself, but why is it that only a specific group of people or groups of people find themselves in this situation? And yeah, that's my personal background and how I too became involved in activism, particularly when I was asked by the Nama um, traditional leaders, by the chiefs, to mainly support them with international lobby work, you know, to to get more solidarity networks um, and to really work towards the struggle as a universal struggle for for reparations. And so this is where my main focus is, but also just to look at while the political work continues, what are the legal options that are, that are open to us to take on this fight. So that's just a a little bit about that. Yeah,
1: thank you very much for this um, very personal story, which brings us right to the point. Because, um, I mean, we're talking about a genocide which happened between 1904 to 1908. And now we're probably for the first time, a broader public is aware of this genocide and a broader public is discussing how to acknowledge um, the genocide and how to, how to pay reparation. And this is only due to your struggle, the struggle of the Nama people, as well as the Herero people. And um, we are three lawyers here. Actually, the trigger for, for many actions were lawsuits in the US, lawsuits that later have been lost but lawsuits that brought the, the genocide on the agenda. And that led to uh, negotiations between the, the, the two governments, Then the post-independent Namibian government. Namibia gained its independence in the same year as Germany became united in 1990. And, um, but even since that time, since 1990, it was not the governments who took action, None of the two governments approached the other to discuss. It was the two two communities. Um, and at some point in two thousand and fifteen, the two governments started to negotiate and came up this summer with a government agreement which is not yet ratified, neither in the Namibian nor in the German government. And this agreement bears a lot of um, yeah. Uh, big, uh, uh, big weaknesses. One is um, we could observe already in the last year. It was only government delegations who, who discussed with each other, and so um, a majority of the of the Nama, Nama and in the um, Herero constituency. So those people who were affected by the genocide were not part of the negotiations, which is a clear breach of many international treaties, including the um, UN Convention on the Rights of Indigenous People, but also many other. And also what we see now, that Germany wants to acknowledge the genocide, and that's at least something, in difference to other colonial nations, they acknowledge that from nowadays legal perspective we can, we can say this was a genocide, but they don't want to uh, acknowledge the legal obligations So they wouldn't use the word reparations. Um, It's a kind of extended development aid um, that they subscribe to. It's 1.1 billion billion, um, Euro, which they want to pay over the last years. So this um, agreement has been strongly criticized by some civil society organizations here, but mainly by your organizations in in Namibia. So, um, would you like to share a little bit of your, of your critique? How did you receive, how did you perceive the whole process and how did you and others react to in this summer um, to the agreement?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, um, right at the start it must be clear that both the Namibian governments and the German government never had any intention whatsoever to ever talk about any genocide. It is only because the Nama and the Ovaheroro people put pressure on them to do so. And if the Nama and Ovaheroro people didn't push for this, then nothing would have happened. I think this is also very evident in an agreement that was all the time denied by the German government. We had been raising this issue a lot of times with the German embassy and with various German representatives. And we've been asking even the Namibian government about a decision that was made between the Swapo Party shortly before independence, right at the turn of independence around uh, 1989. And this has always been denied. But um, suddenly when the joint declaration now be came public, uh, uh, public, known to the public, the 1989, you know, agreement and the Bundestag resolution that was taken is suddenly now contained in this joint declaration, uh, declaration something that had been denied by both governments in the past. So it's very clear that even before independence, there had already been some sort of a, whether it's a gentleman's agreement or whether it's a written agreement or whatever it may have been, there was some sort of understanding between the new ruling party that would take over as the Namibian government and the, the German authorities that there wouldn't be any discussion about this and that, and that Namibia would enjoy some sort of a special a special relationship with Germany, and this is what Germany has always pushed for, and this is what Namibia has always pushed for, and what we have always say said is that we will have none of that. Um, also, secondly, I want to I want to say that I don't see the legal action that we took in New York. I don't see it as a case that we lost. I mean, from 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 my perspective. I see it as a case that we won, um, because the the, the the content of the case it wasn't so much that it was not argued that a genocide was not committed. However, the court did say that a genocide was committed, but that it cannot be tried in a U.S. in a U.S. court. That is the, that 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 is what. That was the finding of the court. So in that sense, I think it was a it was an absolute uh, a breakthrough um, for for us, you know, to to prove that a genocide actually actually took place. That is the second issue that I want to that I want to raise. Um the third issue that I want to raise is from our perspective, um obviously. You know, in, in, in German circles and in other academic circles, people are saying that Germany is now acknowledging a genocide. From our perspective, it hasn't it hasn't done so. Germany and also when you have experienced this declaration, this declaration has almost been a reaffirmation of genocide. Just because of the way that this declaration is written, it is such a racist declaration in every sense of the word, in its very undertones. It reaffirms a colonial relationship it reaffirms a colonial relationship between Namibia and Germany. And so Germany comes to, to Namibia and says to Namibia, "Listen." What happened in 1904, if one looks at it you know, from uh, today's perspective, yes, then it, could, then it could be called a genocide. And we feel really terrible about what our predecessors did. Therefore, Namibia, take this aid that we are giving you so that we can move on with our lives. And the Namibian government is very re- ready to, to, to accept this patronizing, very altruistic gesture, kind gesture by this paternal, uh, paternal figure who deems it very okay to dangle this carrot in front of the eyes of a black government. You know, is like give black people some money and let them just keep quiet and let's get, get on with our lives. From our perspective, that's what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's, taking, it's taking a knife that is already in the flesh and it is digging that knife a little bit deeper into the flesh. That is what the, the, what is, that is what the declaration is for us. Um, I think also what it also does, this declaration, is that it is very reflective of the incompleteness of both the Namibian history as well as the German history. If, if Germany understands its atrocities, specifically in terms of genocide, it only begins to understand it from the period of the Jewish Holocaust. Anything that happened before that is not part of German history. It is not taught to the German child. It is not talked about by the German uh, 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 public. And it is not supposed to be talked about. Because just what happened during the Holocaust is so unGerman, you know, that 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 needs to be, that that part of history needs to be corrected. But everything else that that happened is is, 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 is completely fine. And that is why, even in the declaration, Germany can say, yes from yesterday's, from, from today's perspective. But at the time that it happened, we had the legal right to kill you. Because under international law, you were uncivilized people. You were savages. And therefore, we did not commit a crime. So it, when you look at the declaration, it says we didn't commit a crime. Therefore, we don't really owe you an apology. However, we are going to apologize for what our predecessors did not it is it is a um it is a conditional admission and therefore any apology that would come would be a conditional apology
1: i understand you sima um but you you yourself made the point that you consider the the US lawsuit as a certain um, success. And uh, please allow me to say that from our point of view, it's also an achievement that you brought, that you pressured the German government to at least negotiate, and they will apologize and they will acknowledge the genocide. In a way, you described rightly, and I agree with you, um, but this allows us, lawyers, civil rights groups, civil um, uh, civil society actors, to criticise and go deeper. And this going deeper means also, we would say, look, there was this humanitarian standard by the time, mm-hmm. and these European nations would only subscribe to this kind of, um, you know, treatment amongst each other, what they call civilised nations the not-civilized nations were excluded. And they, that's their interpretation of international law. So, your critique of the agreement allows us to make this critique of international law public. So, actually, it, it triggers a discussion which was overdue and which wouldn't have been possible without you. So, can, wouldn't you consider that as a, as a political achievement? And, and I mean, still maintain the critique. Mm, mm. And maybe the second question, and also to conclude, to to, to switch to, to Vince. Um, so, for the question of the achievement, and the, then the other questions, what do you think are the way forwards? What what, do you, what are your claims, what should be done today?
2: Yes. Um, I, I must be very honest. I must be very honest, sitting from where I sit. Um, sitting from where I sit, I would say that it is an opportunity lost, that the whole negotiation process is an opportunity lost. uh, um, and, And therefore moving forward, the only thing that would make sense, the only thing that, because we have seen that for, this discussion has been going on for 15 years between the two governments. And in those 15 years, we have always been consistent in our demands. And the consistency has always been, allow us to sit at the table. Allow us to be um, uh, uh, our own negotiators. eh? Um, and And also admit to a crime. That is what needs to happen. There needs to be an admission to a crime. And then if there is admission to a crime, then only can there be an apology for the crime. That needs to happen first. If that has not happened, then there is absolutely no way that you can start talking about reparations. And uh, uh, not only reparations, but also not uh, a restitution, but then also a commitment to not allowing this to ever happen again. That is what needs to happen moving forward.
1: Thank you very much, Sima. Vince, would you like to comment first on this before we talk about the um, situation in the U.S. and the claims of the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. and
3: others? Yes, I would, and I, Seema, thank you for both your story and for the, well, the well-pitched critique about what negotiation looks like and how it feels and what's, what's, what's actually being negotiated. And there were a couple of things um, in what you said that I thought were really compelling. One is particularly around the lawsuit in New York Um, when lawyers might feel like it was a failure because you lost, the movement might see it as a success because it actually raised issues for discussions that had never happened before. And that's, you know, in in the movement lawyering work that we do in the U.S., at the Center for Constitutional Rights, we have a a phrase called success without victory. And as you know, human rights lawyers, just getting to the question of, you know, being concrete around um, building human rights or building some of these issues um, like colonialism into the human rights framework, uh, a big part are the lawyers because lawyers don't like to think about cases and strategies that are going to lose. They don't want to file them. It makes them look bad. It doesn't advance the cause. But that's when lawyers are thinking just as lawyers. But when you think about lawyering on behalf of, in support of a movement where the political goals are very different very often than the legal goals, that's when you get these moments of success. And I'm wondering what it would look like in the United States. I, I, I would venture to say that the United, and the United States court would be less likely to call U.S. slavery a genocidal project than they would to call the Namibian genocide a genocide. And that says a lot about how the law operates how, to, to as a protectionist uh, framework, and also that... U.S. courts can be relied on to hold perhaps other countries to account but cannot be relied on to hold itself to account. Um, And I think another thing that I wanted to say was that, and I'll get to this shortly, is that in the United States, um, the Movement for Black Lives uh, and COBRA, a range of groups, some of whom that have formed recently, some of, of which have been around for generations have come to agreement on several principles around reparations. And one that I find compelling, which you also mentioned, uh, is not just a a cessation of continuing violations, but making sure that these don't happen again in the future, which is a very, very difficult task for a government to commit to, much less comprehend. And it's a very different difficult task for the politicians that are involved in negotiations to commit to even comprehend, but it is essential for the continued survival. Last thing is um, an, another piece that is very resonant in the U.S. context around um, reparations is the intergenerational trauma. And so listening to your story about your, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, and the work that's happening now, it, it becomes very clear to all of us that n- it's, in some ways none of this has happened in the past. Looking at it uh, in a timeline in that context only misses the point of what's happening. These are continuing violations, even when people say that uh, we're sorry, even when they're in the context of negotiation, they continue until they don't. And that's the the key part about uh, reparations.
1: No, that's a very interesting point, but it needs to be made. You know, because people don't understand it. It needs, so I'm sorry for you, Sima, that you have to tell the story over and over again. But for many people, it's just a frozen piece of, of the past. And so I think it needs it needs explanation and it needs to be written down in, in, in school books and, and in, uh, to be discussed in universities that we're co- talking about post-colonial injustice. Mm-hmm. And this includes also, and that's the question which completely spared out of of this agreement, but I guess this is also the case in the u s we, uh, the, the, the agreement with Namibia didn't discuss the land question, mm-hmm. although <laughs> the the Germans and later on also the South African colonizers took away the fertile land of the Herero and Nama people. It doesn't uh, discuss the question of access to natural resources, and it doesn't hold those accountable who profited from the colonial period. And um, here we are with your um, discussions in the US. And can you give us a little bit of an insight of how the question of reparation for slavery is now discussed. We know that there were uh, important uh, articles, there were initiatives in the Congress. Black Lives Matter put it on the on, on, uh, uh, as a claim. But how is this,
3: um, um, how does this um, um, discussion develop? Yeah, What's a, and it's a good question. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that it's a different colonial context depending on who the oppressed people are, so if we were talking about it in the context of indigenous people first and, and first peoples in the United States and the colonizing of, of their culture and their lands and the appro- and enslavement of indigenous people, that's one set of, uh, of harms that also needs to be a part of the conversation and the what's wonderful about the Black Lives Matter movement is that they're actually n- they are completely focused on black people but they do it in an intersectional way so that they not only acknowledge, but they also build alliances with indigenous people, with first peoples around those questions because uh, black, if a, a scenario in which everything was made wonderful and perfect for black people in the United States, the descendants of African slaves would do nothing, um, well, would do little to address the, the fundamental problem, which was what happened before. Um, I, I would say that I would have my comments this way. I, I, I would tell the story backwards. So the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, it's clearly galvanized uh, the world. It's galvanized movements around the world. Young folks are rising up um, and employing some of the same frameworks, the same tactics as the Black Lives Matter movement. And, but people would make the mistake that Black Lives Matter is just a... Um, a response to the current state of police violence. And that's when people think that, that they begin to lose the longer um, colonial and post-colonial thread. And so it comes from, a, from the first experience of black people in the United States, the 10.7 million people that were enslaved, the 2 million people that died on the uh, boats... Uh, Coming to the United States by murder, by suicide, uh, by starvation, by disease, that was a, that was a foundational element that really set the experience of everybody, including myself that 's descended from uh, folks that were uh, brought here on slave ships and you know in looking at the at u s history the the transatlantic trade slave trade was abolished in 1808, but that didn't stop the U.S. slave trade. And in fact, what would happen is that because the new importation of slaves was of enslaved people was cut off, um, there was um, you know a massive and systemic effort to force women to have babies, to uh, rape women, and to um, and to separate families in order to. To, popu- to populate the enslaved population. Those aren't very often, they're thought about as discrete acts, but they really are part of the systemic problem that Black Lives Matter organizers are talking about today. So when we talk about um, the very high, outrageous um, child inf- uh, immor- uh, mortality rate for and, and mortality rate for black women who are giving childbirth, it is a direct line to the way black women's bodies were treated by the uh, system of slavery. Um, Two, that the system of slavery ended and it was then followed by a hundred years of racial terror particularly in the american south through the ku klux klan state sanctioned action even after that was over and or after it abated and the civil rights movement it was then followed by the so-called war on drugs which was a political move to begin to essentially criminalize black and brown people and now mass incarceration police violence economic disenfranchisement and so on. So for the Black Lives Matter activists, the idea of reparations are not just about defunding the police. They are about addressing all of those harms because this generation understands better than I think my generation did what intergenerational, not only harm looks like, but intergenerational trauma. Um, I think folks in my generation, I'll speak for myself, I've been so so traumatized that I've actually moved to try to use the master's tools, become a lawyer, to do all these types of things uh, in order to, to fix things. Which, and I'm glad that I did. But the younger generation, they're not putting up with that. Frankly, they're not even putting up with people in my generation that are looking at it. And that's what's so exciting about it. So when you think about the reparations that, uh, that are being called for, it's, repra- it's not just money, although it all costs money and it all takes political will. Um, it's addressing the badges and indicia of slavery. So not just the past acts, but everything that enslaved people and their descendants have had to endure because of that original original manifestation. Cessation of continuing violations, as we were talking about. Guarantees of of, uh, non-repetition. Divest and invest. Taking the resources that we have, divesting from the systems like uh, the... Prison industrial complex, the policing system, um, the uh, lack of educational opportunities and investing those instead of the oppressive systems in the people that are descendants of slave, slave and slave people. Intergenerational trauma, as we talked about, and um, also restitution. Restitution meaning restoring the survivors of that, of the genocidal project to the state that they were in before the Zan project. And here's where we run into the problem, because I'll speak for the United States, the United States political system, not only will not, but cannot acknowledge that there was a point in which black people were free, that they were free to farm their land, that they were free to live in communities, they were free to thrive. This United States system is based solely on the idea of the criminality and, inferiority inferiority of black syst- uh, people. All of our systems are designed to take corrective action for uh, our inherent inferiority. And so getting to the question of reparations is very, very difficult because the acknowledgement of the basic crime has to happen first, and they are incapable of doing that without being pushed by civil society. That's a
1: very interesting point because when we... Uh we were two years ago, we had a series of events in Windhoek and Swakopmund in Namibia, ECCHR and organizations like uh, like SIMAS, and we had Makau Mutwa speaking there. And then in, in his uh, speech, he made the point, he asked the rhetorical question, can the Germans ever accept the over Herero, Nama and other black Namibians as equal? Can they ever accept them as equals? And he said, the answer lies in how German... Germans react to the questions of genocide and reparation, so here we are, and so we we just could replace you know u s <laughs> American system through uh and black black Americans. so this is um and, and i and, and I found it particularly interesting and uh, and I want to repeat it, this question of intergenerational trauma that is something that people wouldn't understand, and I think people need to understand. So, you um, explained us the fundamental uh, importance of of this whole discussion, but you're also involved as as an organization in very uh, concrete struggles around post-colonial injustices like police, violence, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. so could you give us a little bit of an insight in sure. that? Sure.
3: And we are, um, so the Center for Constitutional Rights has been lit- using litigation as a tool around police violence, police harassment, and more importantly, um, suppression and control of black communities. And so um, in New York, there was the Stop and Frisk program that has operated for generations. And uh, we had a successful litigation. We did a a nine-and-a-half-week trial in which we won on the issue that the New York City Police Department policy uh, violated the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution around equal treatment and the Fourth Amendment article around searches and seizures. Now, you, that, we can get back into that success failure question, because that's, that's a situation where the legal field would say, clearly we have succeeded, and yet it has not done much to eradicate um, it may have ameliorated some things, but it's not done much to eradicate uh, that challenge. We've been doing a lot more work in the South than the Southern United States, and particularly working with black communities around um, their, and their, their lands. And this is where the land question gets interesting, because after slavery ended, a number of uh, black folks bought their land, bought, bought the land that they, were, that they were on. And of course, they spent generations trying to keep it. That land was being stolen. Um, more recently, what's been happening is uh, petro... And this relates to environmental and corporate work. Petrochemical c- plants uh, are in, are proliferating only in black communities. There's a big grain elevator that uh, they want to put in a, in a black community. The, a, um, the Formosa chemicals plant, plastics plant in, from Taiwan, is uh, starting to build a billion-dollar plastics plant on the Burial site of enslaved Africans in Louisiana. In Louisiana, yeah. in Louisiana. sorry. Yeah, yes. you
1: know, you you have to come up um, tomorrow because you are now in Berlin, um, because uh, we work together with forensic architecture in a new project called Investigative Commons, and one of their project is exactly to research this continuation of post-colonial injustice in the in the region of Louisiana. Well,
3: This is good. And so, I I mean, I I would actually very much want to do that. And I think the the point that I would want to make, I think, aside from what we're doing, is that if we've just made the connection between how the German government and the United States government are disinclined, disabled in some way from acknowledging what what is happening, what we've done is we've created a framework for how post-genocidal oppression works. And that makes it ripe for human rights analysis, that we don't have to look at these as horrible humanitarian tragedies. We can look at these things as actual crimes that need to be acknowledged, they need to be ameliorated, they need to be eradicated, and the victims need to be, uh, and the descendants need to be made whole. Now, that is a human rights project I'm not so sure why people are not doing that. Okay. You have not to point
1: to us because we're <laughs> taking this up. But I am. Um, I, I, I was wondering, and I want to. Um, this is my last question to you because we let wait uh, Mina too long. But um, I mean, recently a report um, uh, was published of the UN Special Rapporteur on Transitional Justice, and he exactly made this point. You know, the, the already very developed toolbox of uh, transitional justice. Why did nobody apply it to? crimes. And here we are again. But my question would to you, why did human rights organization and legal organization didn't take this up? I mean, why only now? And why only UN bodies and
3: some weird organizations like ours? Organizers, oppressed people and victims, by definition are visionaries. Because when you live under the conditions that people live in, You have to be able to, you can only move forward if you can imagine a better world and if you can articulate the things that need to change. The problem with the human rights legal community is that there are not a lot of visionaries. You are one, sir, but there are not a lot of them. A lot of them are functionaries. And so there are three reasons why this hasn't been taken up. Number one is because the politics are so difficult that it makes lawyers feel that it Politically, they won't be able to win. The courts tend to be conservative and makes lawyers think that they'll never win. And because the lawyers are not visionaries, that they would rather work within the framework that exists rather than pushing the framework. And what we need are more lawyers that would push the framework to take those risks. We have huge debates about whether we should or should not do things in our community, which is fantastic. But it's the vision and taking that risk. The question is, what does a lawyer have to lose if... Uh, oppressed communities have anything to gain. And in human rights frameworks, we don't always ask those questions.
1: That was more than a comprehensive question And talking about visionary lawyers. We are. (laughs) um, We now um, are eager to listen to you, Mina. Mina Jagannath, you worked a lot of uh, um, uh, time in in Miami and uh, did very concrete work. Why don't you explain us a little bit what you did there with the Haitian and the black and other communities?
4: Well, before um, getting there, I I would just lo- love to uh, comment on this conversation just because I think I I really thought what Simo was saying about um, you know the preconditions necessary for for reparations to to even happen. That's just it's so applicable across the board. It makes me think about you know the 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 sort of panoply of things that are necessary uh, for transitional justice to take place. It's, you know, recovering a history. It's an apology. It's it's actually telling that story and teaching it to future generations. It's a, it, That actually constitutes a true acknowledgement of the harm that has happened and a, a commitment to move forward from that. It, it's very interesting what, what Vince uh, was saying, what we were commenting on about ongoing coloniality in the U.S., the, um you know, both from... Slavery, and then also the robbing of Indigenous people of their lands, and um, and and the injustices committed against um against First Nation people in 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 uh, in the U.S. And you know, I think I think we see what we saw in Miami, for example, is you know just a continuation of that. What and we see that playing out in the geography, and you know, for example, one of one of the, the issues that we worked on a lot is around gentrification and and, and, um, land issues. And what's interesting about Miami is that there were Jim Crow laws in place and black people were allowed to live coast. Um, they were allowed to, uh, like on Miami beach where, where, you know, there were the nice hotels where the parties were happening. Um, only, uh, uh, white folks were able to live there, but, um, they would, they would have black entertainers come in, uh, to play music. But then afterwards they had to go back Over uh, to the other side of the segregation wall. Now, now, when we see, you know, sort of the 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 geography of Miami, we would we see um, black people living in. um, If you if you um, overlay like the economics map on that, you see that the the sort of poorest neighborhoods in uh, in Miami are populated by black folks, and the coast continues to be to be white, but with you know, sea level rise and the warming of the climate, we see that, um, in fact, the the land that Black folks were forced to live on um, in the past is is actually on higher ground. And so now we see a situation where the neighborhoods that none of the white folks wanted to live on is now the s- some of the more valuable land because, because the coasts are being threatened by hurricanes, sea level rise, um, flooding, and uh, and you see, a, a sort of uh, a new wave of uh, I would say it, it colonization. You know, you have a new wave of of people buying up the land that was now hi- historically populated by by Black folks because it is becoming the you know sort of the the resource that is coveted in in this in the uh, uh, context of of uh, of climate change. But um, and so and so for us as lawyers, I mean, our thing. Our, the way that we operated was to say okay like in this in this dynamic we need to um take advantage of the democratic space that exists for people to um, make their demands and fight for for greater rights and self-determination and have uh help people navigate you know the planning and zoning like help people navigate those processes so that they can actually have a say in in what the their future community looks like and i would argue that that within all of these systems even as a, as a human rights lawyer i I think one of the um, one of the things that's most important is, you know, not not to kind of work within the confines of what the law says you can do, but actually to um, try to push uh, these institutions and push these systems to acknowledge the the actual demands that are being made. So, for example, like when when we went to um, Geneva uh, after um, the killing of Mike Brown, we went um, we submitted a shadow report to the U.N. Committee Against Torture. Um, during the treaty body review of the U.S. with uh, the parents of Michael Brown as well as um, the activists in Ferguson, we um, we knew that that forum wouldn't necessarily, you know, accept everything that that the community was demanding and 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 wouldn't necessarily echo what it was that we wanted. But we also knew that to go to the U.N. to, to um, speak before the 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 Committee Against Torture. Um, to speak on the world stage would provide a, a platform that um, where, where, you know, people could speak their injustices. The, the, you know, there's a, there's a way in which legal forums, while uh, you know, they're, they're usually not designed to, you know, to allow the full story to to come through. We as human rights source can actually facilitate the process of storytelling of uh, correcting the narrative of making sure that the um, uh, the people who are most directly impacted are able to tell their stories and and also put forth the solutions that they think are are um, necessary in order to to repair the harm that has been done. And so um, that's why I think you know the what we are talking about is is so important here because because I think that you know we uh the human rights as as Vince was saying the the human rights field has historically you know not been been uh you know not at the forefront of necessarily speaking um not not necessarily you know saying the the truth of what happens like we we tend to we tend to kind of um be be more uh, reactive. Uh, And yet um, I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity. And and in fact, if the human rights system is is going to um, continue to be one a system that that movements use, we we have to be more brave in the way that we um, in the way that we uh, accompany communities.
1: It's very Uh, interesting, uh, Mina, what you're saying, that you are kind of pointing to new initiatives towards the UN. While people tend to forget that there is a long history of Namibians black Namibians going to the UN and and even you know in the 40s already the first claims regarding reparations for the genocide in the German genocide were made at the UN and also the civil rights movements in the in the in the in the US including the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X always used the UN as a as a political but also legal forum and Malcolm X himself was pointing to the fact that black rights are, are human rights, and so it's a very interesting reconnecting to a more political vision, while the functionaries of human rights, as you call them, um, have forget, have forgotten to connect to this to this political vision. So, Mina. Um, you heard Vince talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the reparation question. How do you perceive the, the discussion around police violence? Has has anything? People are, I mean, many people connected to that. Many people heard about it, but more than a year later, I think it's interesting for also for many people to hear about. Has something changed from your perspective? Um, have you achieved something? And if if so, what is it?
4: Well, you know, I asked myself this question as the uprisings were happening last year. And it was interesting because it was about, you know, over five years since the um, since the uprisings in in Ferguson. And, uh, you know, I reflected on, you know, how much how much do we truly achieve in that time? You know, if if George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, if if these police killings continue to happen. And as uprisings were unfolding and the, the demand of, of defund the police or the demand to uh, divest from um, these harmful institutions and invest in in care and uh, healing and uh, food and uh, basic needs of people, as as those demands started coming forward, it made me think that, you know, even though in 2014 and 15, it seemed like the people in power were not listening, and um and that you know the the what we were able to achieve didn't feel like big enough victories, or, or it, it didn't feel like it, it actually completely acknowledged the the full force of the demands. Uh, even though even though it seemed like those in power were not were not listening to the demands, I um hearing young people almost you know able to articulate exactly what it was that we were talking about uh, in in the the uprisings of last year, it made me think, Okay, even if the the people in power are not listening, young people are listening, people, uh, the broader public is listening. And it is is always important to make the demands that we think are necessary in order to address the injustices that have happened. And we um, it is it is not our job as lawyers to um, to dampen those. It's our job, our, our job as lawyers to say, okay, like how can we use the tools of a law to create space for you to make these demands, to create space for you to explain what was what uh was a harm that happened. And uh and so, you know, I think uh I think that we are still um a far ways away from from truly dealing with you know the the really deep-rooted systemic problems that um, allow for uh, police violence to happen and to continue to happen, but I think that the uh, you know this this full range of things that we've been talking about apologies, historical memory, teaching um, uh, history and teaching the, the the truth to to young people, continued protests when when these things can, uh, do happen, and then and then yes reparations as well. I think all of those things. Are necessary in order for us to uh truly um acknowledge this. And and I would also argue that it is a global process. I mean, yes, you know, we're talking about um the in the US, we're talking about the history of, of slavery and what that has done to Black folks in the US, but it is it is a dynamic that is a not analogous to the relationship of uh formerly colonized people to the colonizing states. You know, the the same kind of distrust that you know, black folks and and other people of color have towards police in the U.S. is is as in my experience working in in um in other places. My experience also with India, where which is where my family is from, Haiti, and other places is that you know people um, don't and that has been you know sort of handed to them by by the colonizing power and um and i would argue that you know a lot of the the sort of dysfunctions in the way states states work uh, or states are are have developed in these formerly colonized countries come from the uh failure to truly address um the harms of colonialism the the ways that it has displaced um you know sort of more indigenous ways of governing the ways that um you know, it has has prevented true self determination, and uh, and unless we actually not just um, uh, acknowledge the harm, but also acknowledge, you know, that the how our institutions are, you know, continue to be tinged and and marked by coloniality, we're not going to get to a place where um, where like real uh, justice and 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 human rights for these can be can be realized.
1: Thank you, Amina, um, and we're coming back to you and uh, let you talk about a recent initiative of your um, organization. But I would like to, uh, to hear a little bit from you, Sima. How do you perceive these two stories from Amina and from Vince about, about the US? What comes up to your mind when you hear this?
2: I hear a common thread. I hear a common thread in what I'm saying. From a Namibian perspective, I hear common thread from what they are saying, and for me, this is about uh, colonial repercussions, you know, and our inability to deal with those repercussions, and our inability to deal with that trauma, and not our our inability to to look at ourselves in the mirror. Take take an example. What Germany is doing through this uh, joint declaration in Namibia, for me, is an extension of what it does inside Germany. Because in Namibia, Germany is unable to look into the mirror. And, 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 and therefore, by design, the Nama and the Ovaherero people, it is by design. The Nama and Ovaherero people are not allowed to be at the negotiation table. Because if they were at the negotiation table, then Germany would be able to look into the mirror because, they, because these people would then reflect back to Germany what is real and that Germany is able to face. And it is similar to what, to what happens inside Germany. In, uh, is Germany reflecting on anti-black, anti-blackness, in germany is 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 it is is it reflecting on its own relationship with all its former colonies and and where does the what is increasingly becoming a problem anti-blackness inside germany uh, come from so i I'm, I'm seeing a and young people, I mean, like both speakers were saying, whether we like, I've I've been in activism since I was 16 years old and I'm now going for my 60s and I'm starting to get a little bit tired of this. But for, if, if you look at, even what happens not only in the US, but if you see at uh, what happens in Namibia, if you see what happens in Germany, even in other parts of Europe, young people are saying enough is enough. And why are they saying that? And when I was young, I used to say enough is enough. And now my children are saying, and, and still <laughs> nothing has been solved. And so from generation to the next generation, you know, this trauma just continues and builds up. Um, and, and therefore, I see that the only way that we can really deal with this is to create these international sort of partnerships, international networks, and move into an international reparations a movement rather than, you know, talking about genocide in Namibia because the similarities are so, are, are, are so there, they are there. It's just that the real issues that we are dealing with are not necessarily the same. And, I mean, in, this, in the case of Namibia, you are not only dealing with colonialism because colonialism has got its own issues, but you are also on top of colonialism, you are dealing with a genocide. You know, and there is a there is a difference between the two um so yeah, this is what I'm hearing, and I don't see any of these of these movements in these different countries able to you know to 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 make victories alone, but to do this together. I think this is what I'm hearing from from what the two speakers are saying,
1: thank you first of all. Obviously, I owe you an answer about Germany, and uh, no, it's not enough how Germany uh, reacts not only to anti-black violence and, and discrimination, but also to anti-Arab, anti-Islamist, and also anti-anti-Semitic um, violence. It's it's not enough. So that's the one point I want to make. But there, it's contested. I mean, that's that I think is important, and that is something I hear you saying. About talking about exhaustion and enough is enough. But I would, I would, and and, then this is something I would like to ask all of, all the three of you. The last round, compared to the situation, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, didn't we come, didn't we go some steps at least? Mm -hmm. Um, Because maybe, you know, this is something like the way how we imagine justice is a utopian goal which we will never achieve, mm. but it can also um, paralyze us if we compare the situation from now to this, to this absolute ideal, mm. to this absolute goal. While when we look 20 years ago, I would say colonialism is on the agenda of so many European actors as never, as never. And um, so this is a question I have to, for all of you. But I mean, um, I, want to, I want to get back to you, Mina, because, I mean, Sima was calling for a, for a global movement for reparation. And one of the obstacles which stands in the way for global movement and for global encounters is the pandemic. And that's an issue you took up. And I would say this is um, the, the the current scandalous vaccination, global vaccination policy and access... To um to vaccines is, is a continuation of post-colonial injustice we've been talking about. And so um, uh, our organization, ECCHR is very well connected with you and with movements, LawyersNEP, and we took together some initiatives. Um, but maybe you, you you tell us a little bit more about this.
4: You know, our our even before the pandemic, um our uh hunch was that global crises. Or our, you know, our understanding, our analysis was that global crises require global solutions, and in order for us to actually address the crises that we're experiencing that are global in nature, we actually we have to be connected to one another across borders and actually deal with these issues in a transnational manner. So what Seema was saying about the necessity for networks and for us to deal with these problems in a global manner is 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 absolutely correct, and it is the reason why. We're building um, the global network of movement lawyers, and and so when the pandemic began, and um, you know, as it as it started unfolding, we we saw actually that this network was was of use. The fact that some of us had gotten together already and built relationships across borders was useful because then we were able to um, share stories and talk about how it was that. We um as lawyers in our respective places were supporting um people in in uh getting what they need, for example, people who are incarcerated, um, you know, the eviction moratoriums like uh, on, on the housing front uh for workers. Um and, and so we we began to start exchanging. And then when the vaccine um Rollout began, and in particular, when uh, in in April, when we saw the way um, the Delta variant was tearing through India, our our colleague Karanti basically came to to us. He uh, was a part of multiple networks, the global network of movement lawyers, as well as um, the the ESCR net and another network, Inclo. He basically said to all of us, he says, "Well, what are, what are you all doing, human rights lawyers? Um, isn't isn't this one of the biggest?" Human rights issues that we're facing. How is it that how how are we actually responding to this? And um and as we began to analyze and and talk to people in the Access to Medicines Movement, basically activists who had been organized and involved ever since the AIDS uh, HIV pandemic, they said, well, you know, the biggest problem is is intellectual property rights and the way that intellectual property rights are privileged over the human rights of. Uh, of people all around the world and so um and so we uh across networks decided to to come together to f- to to figure out how it is that we can um leverage the the human rights human rights mechanisms as well as the courts to achieve equitable distribution of uh vaccines as well as well as other covid healthcare and um, for us i think uh one of those uh so there are multiple tracks moving there are uh because the the offenders we could say or the the people the the problematic states unfortunately are all in the global north where vaccines are being hoarded where um you know the pharma companies are um you know they they are determining policy versus you know sort of human rights or international cooperation um being the the primary um, the primary concern, um, we uh, w- lawyers from the global north basically got together with lawyers from the global south to say, OK, we were going to support you all in pushing our governments in the US and Canada, in the UK, Germany, Switzerland, Norway to say, you know, how um, uh, uh, let's leverage uh, courts, domestic litigation. Let's leverage um, U.N. treaty bodies, So the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, as well as uh, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, using U.N. special procedures, special rapporteurs to um, to put out multiple um, urgent appeals and petitions that allow us to tell the story and then Basically, give it back to those institutions to say, okay, Mina, yes, you are noble. Sorry,
1: Mina, it's it's very difficult to ta- to get into contact with you. If you were sitting here, you would see um, that we have only four minutes left, and so I would like you to come to oh. an to to an end. It's it's really um, a pity that I have to cut you short this way, but uh, no, no, as we have it's no okay. eye contact, um, <laughs> it's it's a difficult task to not to be impolite, but
4: no, no, absolutely, and. And the, the one thing that I, I did want to mention was recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, we filed to the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And, you know, as we were putting that that uh, appeal together, there were a lot of conversations about how an appeal of this nature had never been done. Uh, usually uh, it's one state being um, called to, to, to task for, you know, uh, violations against people within that country. And there isn't there isn't a um, you know the the sort of transnational claim has never been made. But you know in in the way that we were talking about it before, we said, well, you know, we we have to um, sort of force or or not force, but like we have to try to make the claim that that we need to make uh, about the glo- like about this dynamic of the global North, global South, re-entrenching colonial relationships. Um, it's, it's re-entrenching a, ra- uh, a racial discrimination at the, at the global level that has its roots in, in colonialism, and, um, and therefore, in order for countries to, to truly um, meet their obligations under the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, they need to support um, the waiver of the IP technology transfer and doing all the things that are necessary to actually unlock. Uh,
1: Thank you very much, um, Mina for introducing unlike. this initiative, um, um, quite innovative initiative. Vince, you heard Sima's claim for a global reparation um, movement. you had Mina's new initiative. Would you like to, to conclude or to add something to that?
3: Yeah, I actually I would like to answer your question about uh, that you asked for Mina, have things changed uh, have things changed in the last last 20 years. Looking back, things have definitely changed. You asked the question of Mina about um, Black Lives Matter, what's, what's, been hap- you know, what's happened in the last couple of years. And here's the thing. Currently in the United States, state legislators are trying to slip away from the idea of defunding or divesting from the police as a political move. Now, some people will say, well, Black Lives Matter has failed because they haven't gotten those things done. But, you know, my kids don't get a cookie every time they ask me. And what we actually should be thinking about is given the breadth and the depth of the inhumane treatment, do we actually expect the first time that we're going to ask for something that the state is going to give it to us? No. Intergenerational trauma, this is what I've learned from from you, Seema. Intergenerational trauma requires intergenerational strategies and that we're human rights lawyers are in the middle of an intergenerational strategy and taking the long view about where we need to go should not be replaced by the failures that we, that we inevitably um, experience. What we should be looking at is how we have managed to shift the, the political discourse, which makes it possible for the political solutions that we're calling for, and it also makes it po- possible for courts to be able to step out and feel like they can safely say, this is a genocide, this needs to be addressed.
1: Thank you very much, Vince. Thank you, thank you very much, Seema. And thank you very much, uh, Mina. Actually, you can hear more from Sima and more from other actors from Namibia on Friday. Friday evening at 6.30, there will be an opening at the Berlin Gallery called ARTCO. A-R-R-T-E. C O Artco. Um, and they will stream the event with Sima and others. So maybe for those of you who are interested in a deeper insight. For those of you who want to get a, um, a bit more um, of an explanation what, what is meant by success without victory, please um, um, plug in to our discussion next Wednesday, Wednesday 24th. ECCHR is hosting an event. Um, and presenting a book of our friend Michael Ratner, who passed away, Moving the Bar. And one of the main uh, topics of this book is exactly the question how, um, about the ambivalence and the limits of law, but how it still can be used by organizations like ours. So we are going to continue the conversation here in Berlin. But, um, we will, we will end the streaming here, but I don't want to end without, uh, thanking my colleagues, um, Claire, Antonio, and for Maria, who, um, supported this, this series. Um, who is interested can, uh, look, on um, all different parts of this series in our YouTube channel. And, um, obviously a big thank to the team of Orca, who built up a little film studio here in, <laughs> at ECCHR office. Um, and um, yeah, hope you, um, you you took something away from the discussion, and see you all hopefully very soon. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you.